Well, it's good to see you tonight. I'm thankful for your interest in spiritual things. I know you have long days, and you work hard all day, and you're tired, and you come in here, and I appreciate your interest in God and His Word. And I hope tonight that uh, as we've been doing, I can say something from God's Word to encourage you, help you, challenge you at the same time to want to grow. And remember, one of the things we've talked about is we keep thinking about our theme this week. And as we want to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we want to help Christ to be conformed in each other. And so tonight again, we're going to think about what's been our topic this week that's going to help us in that area. And as we're talking about what godly people do, and how godly people live. And what we're trying to do each time is step into the life of some godly individual or individuals that we see in the scriptures. And we look at their situations and circumstances that they were confronted with. How did they behave? What did they do? Last night, for those you were here, those that weren't, we talked about what godly people do in conflict. And we looked at Yodi and Seneca. We looked at what God through Paul told that those two ladies on how to resolve this, the attitude they needed to have, the mind of Christ that they were being called to have. Well, tonight we want to keep going and think about another aspect of our relationship together. And another aspect of our relationship that's going to help each of us be conformed to Christ's image. That has to be one of the greatest desires for all of us in our spiritual life, for me, and for you, if that's going to happen in my life, if that's going to happen in your life, then what we're going to talk about tonight has fundamentally got to be a part of my life. Because if it's not, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be looking like Christ at all. All right. So I got a verse on the overhead. All of them won't be, but this one will be. Matthew 6, you know it well. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you're reading your Bible, I'm going down to verse 14 now. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. You know, we know that. We know that as well as we know our name, don't we? That when we've been hurt, when we've been wronged, whether it's me or my family or someone close to me, that we have to forgive. When they come, they come sinking that forgiveness. We, we forgive. That's what God's saying in that text. The challenge to you and I is to forgive. There's a real problem, a real problem in the heart of any Christian who will not forgive. If you're not willing to forgive, and, and maybe even just learn to let go of this, it, it, despite the ongoing pain and difficulty that may still be involved in whatever was done to you, but if you're not willing to let go of that, then you can see why I said, you're not going to have that relationship with Christ, and you're not going to be conformed to His image. And there's a real problem inside the heart of that person. Why is it so hard to forgive? And maybe you're thinking, well, Greg, it's not that hard for me. You must be the only one. Well, no, I, I, come on now. We all know the truth, right? 
Why is it? Why is it at times so difficult to forgive? I know there are a lot of answers to that question. And, and I'm not here to try to answer all of those. But you know one thing in my personal experience that I've, I've found why sometimes it's really difficult to forgive. It's so easy for me to recall the hurt or the wrong that's been done to me. Just like that. I can call that thought up in my mind anytime I want, anywhere I'm at, in anything I'm doing. And we do that sometimes. We call that hurt or that wrong back up. We get in our minds and we it's it's so palatable, it's so real, it's it's like it's fresh all over again. And we're right back in that same journey of the emotions and the feelings that are connected with what's happened. And I have to think one of the reasons maybe that it's hard, it's just so easy to do that. And yet still, despite the hurt, despite the wrong, the heart of a Christian is to be the heart of Christ. The mind of a Christian is to be the mind of Christ. The attitude, the behavior of a Christian is to be the attitude and the behavior of Christ. And I know exactly what was in the heart of Christ. At the worst moment in some ways, in the most difficult moment that he would face, the most unjust and wrong treatment is on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's, that's the mind of Christ. That's what he's thinking. They're hurling insults at him. They're, they're the two thieves, all the others, the religious leaders, wagging their fingers at him, saying all the things they were. Forgive them. I'll tell you something. I said this last night. I may say this again. You will not drift into that kind of attitude as a Christian. That is a deliberate choice to be like Christ. To be able to be hurt and wronged. But when someone comes seeking it, you're ready to give that forgiveness. So tonight, here's here's our thought. Godly people forgive. And they ultimately are going to have to learn to forgive the way God forgives. So here's what I want to do for our time the rest of the night. All I want to do is I want to go back to someone we've already looked at once this week. And I want to step into his life again, but at a different phase in his life. And I want to see what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like in his life. And then know he was a godly man. And I want to see the wrongs and the hurts that were committed against him. And then let God paint the picture for us in the scripture. What godly people do when it comes to forgiving others. Even those who have sinned and hurt you so egregiously as he was. And yet still what you're going to see in that story. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Do you know who I'm talking about? Open your Bibles. Genesis 45. Let's step back into Joseph's life again. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> my voice is scratchy. I apologize. That's why I got my water. All right. Let me, let me get you back familiar with the story. I know you know the story of Joseph, but let me get you to where I want us to pick up tonight. And look at reconciliation. But I want you to appreciate 
what's happening in this story. We mentioned it the other day, if you recall, how the brothers hated him. They hated Joseph. He was Jacob's favorite son. He was dad's favorite. He had the coat of many colors. He had the dreams, and he told the family. And and Jacob had put him in a place where Jacob shouldn't have put him. The brothers hated him. They envied him. They didn't like him. And you remember in Genesis 37, when they saw him coming in verse 18, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. And just short of murdering their brother, you recall they threw him in the pit. They sold him as a slave into Egypt. And he spends 13 years, 13 years. He's 17 when this happens. 13 years. He is either a slave in Potiphar's house or a prisoner after Potiphar's wife lied about him. You want to talk about testing your faith? Stand strong for God. Stand up for the Lord. Really stand up for the morality that God wants you to have. That's what Joseph did. Went over and over, lie with me, lie with me. And he refused, lie with me. Just just lay beside me, You know, sit beside me. He wouldn't even do that. And finally, all the rejections, all the saying no, clear as he could do it, that one day she grabs the coat, lie with me, and he turns and he leaves the coat. And wow, surely how is God going to reward this wonderful faithfulness of this young man? Now's the time, right? And he ends up in prison. And Psalm 105 talks about that as well. The stocks, the chains, and he ends up in prison. Don't be fooled by present circumstances. We still trust the God. We still trust God. We're still faithful to God. And that's what Joseph was. Thirteen years, the brothers changed his life. Not what a 17-year-old kid ever envisions. You remember he interprets the cup bearing the baker's dream. Two years after they're, they're released, uh, the baker's killed, the cup bearer forgets Joseph. But Pharaoh has two dreams. And when he has the dreams, the cup bearer then remembers Joseph. And so he tells and Pharaoh, and they call Joseph, and they clean him up, and they set him before Pharaoh. And like he's done all the way, he just points everybody to God. God's the one interpreting. God's the one that has the answer. And that's what he does with Pharaoh. And so he interprets the dreams. And he, the dreams, and you remember them. Even our kids hopefully remember the dreams. There are going to be seven years of plenty, and it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh takes Joseph, if you recall, and he puts him second, just below him. And I told you the other night, that's power when the only person that could tell you no and get away with it was Pharaoh, just one. That's where Joseph's at. It's right where God wanted him, to look out for his people. Well, the seven years of plenty have passed. The seven years of famine have begun. We're just on the front side of the famine here in Genesis. And Jacob's family runs out of food. So you recall that the brothers go down, they take some money, they take some things to go down to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph, you remember, recognizes them. And he has them thrown in prison on the front side, accused them of being spies, puts them all in prison, and then he lets them out, and he keeps Simeon. 
and he has a plan, and he's got an idea, I think. So he keeps Simeon, and he tells him, go home, gives them their money, gives them the grain, but don't come back without your younger brother, basically. If you come back here, you're not going to see my face if you don't have Benjamin with you. So the boys get up. Jacob's lost another son now. In his mind, Simeon is in prison back in Egypt, and they return home. They tell Jacob what's happened. He's not letting Benjamin go. Joseph was the favorite. Benjamin's the favorite now, no doubt. He's not going to let him go. So time passes. They need food again. They're going to have to go back to Egypt. And they tell their dad, Dad, we, we can't go back without Benjamin. That's, that's what the man said. You've you, you got to bring your brother. And Jacob didn't want to let him go. And you can understand why. You talk about how parents are changed. Things like that change parents. He sent a 17-year-old boy to check on his brothers in Shechem where Simeon and Levi had killed the men of Shechem. But now Benjamin's much older than that. He wouldn't even send Benjamin with him. Jacob didn't want to lose another son. But Judah steps in, and it's beautiful. But I'm, I'm trying to just paraphrase to get us to our text. But Judah basically says this, Dad, if you don't let him go, we're all going to die. You may not want him to go because you don't want to lose him, but if you don't let him go, we're all going to die. And you remember I told you the other night how reluctantly Jacob says, all right, take this, take this, and take the pistachio, take this, and take your brother Benjamin. And he did. So they go back a second time, and they fall down before the man, just like the dreams that Joseph had had. That's exactly what they do. This time, excuse me, this time now, Joseph has a plan. And I think Joseph's trying to see Have the brothers changed? Have they changed? So they take, he sees Benjamin, he eats with them, they eat with Joseph, he freaks them out by setting them down in order of the age of their birth, which would have messed with them big time, and they were really stirred up with all that's going on. And when it comes time to leave, he puts the money back in their bags, and he says, now put my cup, tells us, put my cup in Benjamin's bag, and sends them on their way. And then when they leave, he tells the serpent, now go overtake them. And he does, and he overtakes them, and he, he catches up with them, and he tells them, you know, I've taken this cup from the king. How could you do that? We had to, hey, if, if, whoever done it, then let him be put to death, and we'll be the servants. Careful what you say. And so the servant who had put it in Joseph's bag knew where it was. But do you remember what the text says in 44? He started with the oldest, and he went to the youngest. He knew the anticipation would be palatable as each bag was emptied. Each bag was empty. And then the last bag of Joe Benjamin's, it's empty. And you hear the cup hit the ground. Judah, Judah didn't put his two sons up like Reuben tried to do. Judah put himself forward to be responsible for the boy with his dad. And they go back to Egypt. And I wish we had time to really just read through that. But that story with Judah before Joseph and it's beautiful and what Joseph realized they changed he stood up for Benjamin at a time 
when it would have been easy if they wanted to be like they were before and get rid of the favorite son, they could have done it here and it would actually have been okay. Nothing they could do about it. Not their fault like before. But Judah stood up for Benjamin. Take me instead. You can't do this if you do it. It'll bring his father to the grave. He cared about Jacob. He didn't care about him before for 22 years while they let him believe the lie. But they've changed. And it's in that moment when Joseph sees what's happened. He sees the men here and his brothers have changed. And that's where we pick up in chapter 45. (coughs) Excuse me. If you would, let's start in verse 1 and look at what happens next. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, having everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please, Come closer to me, and they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down and do not delay that's that's a picture of biblical reconciliation that's a picture of forgiveness and in this the goal of that forgiveness being reconciled back together think about that scene here's one of those bible scenes hollywood would never do justice to it the emotion the raw emotion that had to be there in that moment when he said, I'm Joseph, your brother. I, I, to, to say they were dismayed, I, I would have been overwhelmed. I, I would have been speechless. But remember what they did. Just short of murdering him, they sold him for money. <clears throat> they took his coat and they lied to his dad. For 22 years, he thinks he's been killed. He spends... All those years as a slave, in prison, and now the very perpetrators of that are standing right before him. And what does he do? He embraces them. He hugs them. He loves them. And you see that reconciliation. You see that coming back together and bringing this 
horrible relationship that had existed between them. And now they're backed together. And he's able to treat them the way that he treats them. And so what I want to do now is I want to look back at that text. And I want you to see just a few things in the text that help us to see what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like and what it involves and how godly people forgive. And Joseph helps us to see that. And then we'll draw <coughs> excuse me, one other point here toward the end when we get to it. But for now, I want you to see this picture again. And I want you to look at what godly people do. First thing I want you to notice, I thought I had my clicker. I don't have my clicker. Godly people, when it comes to forgiveness, godly people are God-centered and not self-centered. Godly people, when it comes to forgiveness, like we see here in Joseph, they are focused about God. It is not about them. They're not self-centered. They are God-centered. They're not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about God. And what is it that God wants? Remember the other night I asked you, what do you want in conflict? And the second thing I put up there is, I want what God wants in conflict. He wants unity. He wants us to look like Christ. What do you think God wants in these moments when we've sinned against each other and someone comes asking for that? What does God, He wants me to be focused on Him. He wants this to be about Him and about His will for me and how He wants me to behave toward a brother or sister in Christ where there's been sin and they're seeking that forgiveness. That's what God wants. And we must be God-centered and not focused on ourselves. If we're focused on ourselves, and this is all about me and how you've hurt me and how you've wronged me, that heart is not going to be able to forgive the way that God wants us to forgive. If Joseph had had that kind of heart where this was all about Joseph and you've hurt me and you've caused all this damage in my life, he's not going to be able to forgive with that kind of heart. And that's why those hearts that has got a real problem. And there's an ugliness in there when we're not willing to forgive. But when I look at Joseph, that's not what I see. I see a man that's in all of his life, he's looking at God and he's always thinking about God and he's focused on the Lord. And that's what godly people do in those moments they're thinking about God. You sold me, but God sent me. You you meant this for evil, but God, he meant it for good. He saw God in this. When you can see God in the things that happen in our lives, it changes how we see those things and the events and those circumstances. It's God that's made this possible. It's God that's been Joseph's focus his entire life that we've seen here. Go to, uh, back up to chapter 41 of Genesis. <coughs> Excuse me. Back up to chapter 41. I want to show you something he says here. In Genesis 41, drop down with me in your text. Joseph has uh, two sons while he's in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. Notice what the Bible says I'm going to drop down 
to verse 51 of chapter 41. Verse 51 says, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has made me forget all the troubles of my household. How could Joseph do this? How could he embrace these men who had brought such difficulty and pain in his life? How could he do that? That's not natural. That's just not normal. But he could do it because he was focused on the Lord. He's thinking about God. And that's, well, that's what godly people do. In these moments where there's wrong and a need for forgiveness, they think about God. Even after later, when you see this beautiful reconciliation, then later, the dad, Jacob, dies, and the, the brothers are still worried. Okay, he was, <coughs> excuse me, he was only nice to us because dad was still around, but now dad's gone. He's really, and when they, Joseph realized this in chapter 50, verse 70, he wept. I'm not in the place of God. But again, he wanted them to know Joseph had forgiven them. And God was the one that had made that possible. And he saw God's hand in all of this. And that's the first thing I think we see in this story with Joseph is how godly people behave. They forgive. And they do it because they're focused and they're thinking about God. They have a, uh, a life perspective. And that life perspective is God is sovereign. He is in control. I'm his servant. I'm his slave. I'm one of his children. And I've made a commitment. I'm going to follow God and I'm going to do what he says, whatever that may be. And that's going to be my life perspective and how I see life no matter what. He's in control, and I'm not. And I love him, so I'm going to obey him. And God says, you need to forgive. So I'm going to forgive. And that, that's, that's how I see life. You don't understand. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know the kind of pain they... I actually had somebody tell me that to try to justify why they didn't think they could forgive because I didn't... And they even had the audacity to say, I don't even think God would understand what I've been through. Oh, wow. How would you answer that one? Okay. You talk about a heart that's in real danger and got a real problem. There it is. But that's how people are. You don't know what I is. No, maybe I don't. God does and God says I, I've got to forgive if I want to be like him and I want to look like Christ I've got to forgive Joseph had that heart and he was focused on God and that's what godly people were always about 
Don't return evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. Colossians 3, 12, and down Ephesians 4, 32. How many passages can we turn to where we're called to forgive? Have you ever thought about why there's so many passages in the Bible calling me to forgive? God understood. It's not easy. But it's our responsibility if we're going to align ourselves. And we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we're going to do what godly people do. We forgive. Alright, let's look at the second thing. Alright, we're back... Back in, uh, go back with me, I'm sorry, to Genesis 45 again. I want you to look with me again one more time. And I really, I really hope, I really hope you will appreciate this. Think about this. Think about this. Really try to appreciate what's happening here. This is so not normal. Brethren, it is just, this is not, this is not natural. This is not innate. You're not born with this. This takes deliberate effort to behave this way. I'm back in the text. End of verse 4. I'm your brother whom you sold to Egypt. Look at 5 again. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? All that they did and brought into that boy's life, abandoned him, watched him leave as he pleaded with them, pleaded with them, the text says later, and then lied to their dad. He finds all of the other things out when he was talking to them when they came down. And, and now you're comforting them when they did that to you. And you're trying to comfort them? Well, I know what godly people do. I mean, isn't that what you would expect? Isn't that what you would think would be in the mind of Christ? Isn't that what you would think would be the heart of Christ? When someone comes and they seek and they want that forgiveness that that you give and then you comfort, and that's what you see Joseph doing here. He's, He's comforting his brothers. He's the one that was wronged by them. And he turns and tells them, don't be angry. Don't be upset with yourselves. How can he do that, God? That. He's focused on God. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about them. He's thinking about the brothers. You need to let this go. It's like, I've forgiven you. God... If you seek his forgiveness, he'll forgive you. I've forgiven you. And you need to own that and trust that. And people need to be able to feel that. We need to comfort them so they know. And that's vital. We want the one who has sinned against us, who comes seeking that. I want them to know when they come seeking my forgiveness, you got it. And it's over. We're going to put it behind us. And now we're going to start rebuilding this relationship and making it strong again. And so Joseph takes this opportunity here to comfort his brothers. And the only way he can do something like this is because God has been at work in that boy's heart. And God has been at work in that man's heart. And as he said in 4151, he's made him forget. He's allowed him to move forward. And I'll suggest to you, 
God can't eat from you until he manasses you. You're going to have to let go of these things that's behind, so I can move forward and be blessed and serve God in the way that glorifies him. And sometimes you're just going to have to let these things go and serve the Lord and do what's right. And that's what Joseph did. And so when I look at Joseph and I see this, I see a man who cared about his brothers, who wanted them to experience the healing, that forgiveness. And a man who, despite the one that was wrong, he is a godly man, and he wanted to comfort and care for them because he sees the danger of not doing that. Second Corinthians chapter 2. You need to let that man reaffirm. Let them know, lest Satan take advantage of that one. It's important that we're willing to comfort those who've sinned against us and who come seeking forgiveness. How are you doing with that one? That's hard. I mean, it's one thing for me to forgive you, but now I'm, I'm taking it a whole new level. I'm, I'm trying to comfort you in what you've done to me. But I'll tell you, that's where godly people need to be living. The heart that we're called to have. And that's the heart we see in Joseph. It's the heart we see in Christ as well. Okay. One more. I'm back in the text again. I'd like you to drop down with me. Um, Let's pick up in verse 10 of 45. He said, You shall live in the land of Goshen. shall be near me, you, your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. Therefore, I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of the famine to come, and you and your household, and all that you have would be impoverished. You can pause there. The last thing I want you to see here with Joseph as he paints a picture for you and I of godly biblical reconciliation and forgiveness. And the forgiveness we we extend when they come. We want them to forgive. And the goal of that, as I said, is to be reconciled, to be back together in our relationship. He helps us to see that those people are God-centered. They're not focused on themselves. They comfort. And then the last thing you see there that seems obvious, he's doing good and blessing them. I want you to come. Get everybody. And I'm going to put you in Goshen, a fruitful land that also happened to be a lot closer to the promised land, which will come up later and be significant. But I'm going to bless you, your families. I'm going to take care of everybody. And I want you to come and stay up here. In other words, go home and get everybody. Now you're going to be with me, and I'm going to watch after you. And I'm going to help do good for you because there's still five years left in this famine. And it's going to get bad, but not for you. Because you're going to come be with me. I'm going to take care of you. Could you treat somebody who caused you 13 years of pain? Could you treat them that way? Could you comfort them, embrace them, forgive them, and then bless them, do good to them? Could you do that? I hope so. Because that's what godly people are called to do. That's the, the heart, the attitude that is, is God's children we're, we're to have for each other. That heart of forgiveness. 
a New Testament parallel to this. Think about the prodigal son. Think about the prodigal son. He finally came to his senses in Luke 15. When he gets up, I'm going to go to my house. I've sinned against you. I've sinned in your son. I'm not worthy to be your son. He humbles himself. The dad sees him coming. The story, you have this picture of the dad maybe every day looking, hoping, as any parent would, that they come back. And He sees him. The dad runs to him. That's our God. When we come to him, he runs to us. And the dad takes me, wraps his arm around him. I wonder what he smelled like. He'd been in the pig pen. The dad didn't care, did he? He's wrapped his arms around him. And he puts the ring, shoes on his feet, clothes on his back. They kill the fatted calf. What's the dad doing? He's forgiving. He's comforting. He's doing good to him. That's what the dad did. That's how the dad treated the prodigal who treated the dad like he was dead. Give me my inheritance and I'm leaving. Went out and squandered what his dad had given him with no care about his dad. All I want is to be free of my dad's authority, out from under that man's thumb so I can go really live. And I want you to give me my inheritance. And he did. He squandered it, wasted it. Riotous living. And now he's back at his dad's feet. I knew you'd be back. I knew. He didn't do that. He embraces him. He loves him. He forgives him. He comforts him. And he does good to him. Now let me ask you, who does the father in Luke 15 represent? It's God. It's God. How does God forgive? That's how he forgives. When we come to him, We come seeking His forgiveness. He forgives when we come as He's instructed. He comforts us. He takes us. He blesses us. And He continues to do good for us. That's how He's forgiven me. And then He says, no, you go do the same when someone sins against you and comes. You forgive the way I forgive. If God forgave you the way you forgive others, how would that work out for you? If God forgave you the way you forgive others, how would you feel about the forgiveness? I would love to know the real answer to that in all of your minds. (laughs) Excuse me. But would you feel forgiven? What if God said, well, I'll forgive you. But I don't know if I'd be close to you for a little while. We just need kind of we need our distance, all right? Because I'm just, just but I'm gonna forgive you. But you're not gonna be right up here anytime soon. Right? <laughs> Man, that's how we forgive sometimes, isn't it? You know, I'll forgive you, but we don't really want to be around, and we don't want to see him a little bit. You know, that's not how God forgives. He took the son, he wrapped his arm around him, and took him back, and he loved him. But that's how we forgive sometimes. I don't. I, I am amazed in my life at this young age still that so many people, when it comes to their relationship with God and their want for forgiveness with God, they want mercy and grace. But as they interact with each other, they want justice. 
and not the same mercy and grace. I don't understand that. But we're guilty of that sometimes. It's wrong. So I have a final question, and then we're we're done. All right. How would you answer this? Why do godly people forgive? Don't answer out loud, but just to yourself. Why do godly people, because they do, godly people forgive. Because they want to be like God, they want to look like Christ, and be conformed to His image. This is what God calls us to do over and over. Godly people forgive others, no matter what they've done to them. They will forgive them, because that's what godly people do, period. If you're not willing to forgive, then do not see yourself or think in terms of, I am a godly person, because the godly forgive. If I'm not willing to forgive, we started it. Matthew 6, 14, 15. But my question, why do godly people forgive? So, I'll share my answer. And you see if it matches yours. I believe one of the reasons that people who are godly forgive, not just because God calls us to, not that's important, but I think a godly person sees it a lot deeper than what God just told me to. I think that godly people forgive because those are people that know their need, their ongoing need every day for God's forgiveness. I need it every day. And I want it every day. I need it. There isn't a time that comes in my life where I'm not thankful and in need of God's grace. I can't live a perfect life. I'm trying I aim for the standard God has set, and it's high. But the facts are I missed missed the mark, and I miss it on occasion. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to not live a rebellious life, but I'm trying to live a faithful life, and I miss the mark sometimes. And when I miss the mark, I want God's forgiveness, and I come asking Him for it. So godly people are people I know will forgive because they know I need God's forgiveness every day. That's what godly people do. And without that, there's no forgiveness. If we forgive those, God forgives us. But if we're unable to forgive those, then God won't forgive us. Think about that. Think about somebody in your life that may be somebody even sitting here tonight that you hadn't really forgiven that person. Think in this terms, because this is the reality. If there's someone you've not forgiven, Then you go to God the next time and you ask God to forgive you of something you've done. In essence, the answer is no. No. If you're not willing to forgive this person what they've done to you, then I'm not going to forgive you. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. That's scary to ask God and to know, no. It's important that we be willing to forgive others and to have the heart of a godly person and to have the heart and mind of Christ and to forgive the way God forgives us. You listen good. You listen well. I appreciate it. I hope it helps. I hope you're convicted. I hope you're challenged. I hope the next time somebody wrongs you, and I mean they hurt you, you know what? You could say anything you want about me. You could wrong me personally. 
And I'd probably be okay. But boy, you come with my children or my wife or somebody or even a brother or sister in Christ, that's, that's a greater challenge for me now to have that right attitude. You know. God wants me to forgive. When you face with that in your future, think about Joseph. Think about this story, this narrative. It's in here for us. Remember, remember what I said we began in Titus 2, where God's grace saves us and instructs me how to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. And one of those instructions are these stories where godly people were living out God's will in their lives. Think about Joseph next time when you've got this and they're coming. Think about what he did. Think about how bad he was treated and think how God was able to help him let it go and forgive, comfort, bless, and do good toward. And God's the one that enables that. It's his grace. And by the way, that's an extension and an outgrowth of God's grace too. That beautiful, marvelous forgiveness. If there's anything we can do tonight to help you get in a relationship with Christ, please come while we stand together, while we sing our song.